Well, Paul has argued all the way through this letter that he's directed and written to the Galatian Christians uh, that, that this false, these false teachers, that is, uh, these Judaizers who, is, who have infiltrated their church, have been teaching and preaching a false gospel. Uh, it is, in fact, he says in the beginning of chapter 1 that it's actually not a gospel at all, meaning it's not good news at all what it is that they're preaching. But rather, the real gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it comes in the gospel of what he first preached to them when he came to those churches there in Galatia. It was a, it was a message that wasn't taught to him by man. It wasn't given to him by man, but rather it was given to him by Jesus Christ himself, which he argues at the end of chapter 1 uh, was authenticated by the 12 apostles themselves. And so after that point, to distinguish between the two, uh, their gospel, his gospel, gospel from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5 what we saw him doing whether you know it or not or whether you remember it or not what he was doing is he was drawing out the distinctions between the two showing how they were completely different and so understanding that he took that much time to show the difference between uh, these two messages it shouldn't surprise us that this is now where he directs his attention as he closes out the book I want to draw your attention to verse 11 for a moment. Here's how he begins his closing. He says, see what large letters I see, or uh, the letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, it's common knowledge that Paul, even though he's credited for writing all of these letters to these various churches that we have uh, within the Bible, that he didn't literally write them with his own hand. Instead, he would, he would dictate them to a secretary or to a scribe, and then they would very carefully write down the very words that Paul was ultimately speaking. Now, there are all kinds of reasons that people have given historically about why Paul might not be writing his own letters. Some have suggested it could be something to do with his eyesight. Uh, we do know that he contracted something during his time there in Galatia. Most people believe that it affected his eyesight. He struggled with being able to see, and so therefore, it's a little hard to write legibly and Anyway, if you can't see well, others have suggested uh, some other reasons. Some have basically suggested that, look, he's an intelligent man. We know that. Very gifted at oratory and argumentation and debate and, and arguing, preaching the word of God. But he just didn't do much, much writing. And so he was leaving that to the professionals. Uh, you might understand this. I do. Most of my time during the day is spent on a computer. Anytime I have to write a handwritten letter, it is difficult, right? I feel like I'm back in kindergarten trying to write, uh, write something out. And it's even more difficult for whoever's going to try to read that thing. And so Paul is just leaving it up to the professionals at this time to do it. But the truth is, whatever the reason for him getting somebody else to actually do the writing, he changes all that at the end of this letter, which is quite significant. He actually, in verse 11, says, I'm now taking the pen... I'm now writing this, and I'm writing it in large letters. Now, there have been some that have, again, tried to determine why is he writing in large letters. Again, back to the whole eye thing he can't see. Uh, and and the order, only way to see is to write in large letters. Thank God for large print Bibles. Amen, anyone? And so uh, young people are like, what? Yeah, older people are like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so he writes out, but I don't think that's the best explanation. I think J.B. Phillips actually gives the best explanation. He says what he's doing here is he's doing all he can to emphasize what he's about to say. Be very similar to you and I writing a letter on the computer and wanting to really drive something home and we underline it and we bold it and we italicize it. In other words, don't miss this. And here's what Paul's saying. He said, you, you may have missed everything that I've said so far in the distinction between the gospel they preach and the gospel that I preach. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to funnel it all down 
into its, its least or its smallest common denominator to demonstrate to you as clearly as I can the difference between a man-made gospel and a God-given gospel. And what he does, he, de- he demonstrates the differences in two ways. And what he shows us is that there's a difference in what they emphasized and there is a difference in what they exalted. So let's look at those two this morning very quickly. Number one, difference in what they, there was a difference in what they emphasized. Specifically, one emphasized what was on the outside or outward, uh, what was outward. The other emphasized what was ultimately Inward, And so here's, pick up with me in verse 12, if you will. He said, it is, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and, not, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in the flesh. So these false teachers that we know as, as Judaizers were also some sometimes referred to as the circumcision party. And the reason for that is they were all about circumcision all the time. They emphasized and overemphasized the physical outward act of circumcision. Now, they're doing it here. Paul's pointing out that they desired these Christians to to be circumcised. He's saying that they're trying to uh, do everything they can to make them or coerce them to be circumcised. The question is, uh, why? Well, we get the answer from that from Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, which says that at the, at the, at the council of Jerusalem, they argued that the only way for a person to, to, to be right before God is not only faith in Christ, but they must also take part in this physical act of circumcision, which focused almost solely externally. And he says, so this is what one has to do to be made right before God. Now, we have to remember that circumcision in and of itself was an evil, In fact, it was given by God as a command to his covenant people. He told the Jewish people, those that he had called by his grace and and chosen by his uh, grace to be his own people, that they would mark his choosing of them in their relationship with them in a covenant relationship by what? By the circumcision. So it wasn't the circumcision that made them right unto God. God made them right. The circumcision was only a sign that indicated that they were now right unto God. I think we understand this a little bit better if we use uh, maybe um, uh, baptism as an example of this. Uh, there are some similarities and differences between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament um, uh, um, baptism. But I want to draw on the similarities. Both of them are outward signs of inward realities, okay? And and so here's the idea. Uh, If you were to ask somebody, hey, are you saved? And they were to answer your question this way, say, yeah, I was uh, baptized when I was seven years old. You'd probably be a little confused at that point and go, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. Let me flush this out a little bit. Because if they were saying this, if they were saying, yes, I was saved when I was seven because I was actually dunked in water and brought up and that's what ultimately brought about salvation, then you would say, "Uh uh-oh, you're in big trouble. Because being baptized doesn't make you saved, amen? It may make you wet, but it doesn't make you saved. What makes, what, what the significance of baptism is the fact that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, repent and believe, and then as an outward sign of that reality of salvation, now you publicly are baptized. So, so again, whether it be circumcision, whether it be baptism, whether it be a bunch of spiritual works, those things don't save us. They are just signs that we are ultimately been saved. 
And this is what Paul keeps arguing. He says, all you guys do is argue about all the external things, which really doesn't make an ultimate difference of whether somebody is truly born again or not born again, because you can do all those external things and it still doesn't save. So Paul says it like this in verse 14. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, he says, but a new creation. Paul says this whole Christian concept is not about you doing better, but is about you being transformed at the very core of who you are, your heart. That's what we emphasize as believers, not the external, but the internal. And then in order to be able to demonstrate that Paul's not just making this up as he goes, that, that it wasn't God's plan for them to be saved through, through works and through circumcision, through dietary laws. That was never his plan, but rather for God to be able to do a supernatural work in the heart to redeem it and to regenerate it. Listen to the scriptures in the, in, in the Bible, not the New Testament, but the Old. Here, here's what they said. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He goes, I want to do something in you and save you in such a way that now all your affections are changed. And now you love the God that you once hated. All the external circumcision isn't going to make you love God more. Right? If anything, it's going to make you resent God more. It's not going to make you love God by physically something happening to you. God's got to get inside of you, change your very heart to be able to bring about that particular change. And then in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Again, it was never meant, this external acts was never meant to make us right before God. But just as an outward sign and and a reality of the inward change that God has ultimately brought about in us. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 29, But the Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Meaning the letter of the law. It's not by you physically doing. The the, The way that you're saved, the whole point of Christianity is not for you to do something, but for God to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. So the emphasis is always inward, not outward. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that mankind's sinful inclination is to always emphasize the importance of what's happening outward and not upon the inward motivations and the condition of the heart. Now, why is that? Well, it's just a lot easier to do, right? Uh, It's a lot easier for me if I go, hey, man, how do I have to be made right for, for God before God? And you just give me a list that I can just check off during the day. You need to pray so many times. You need to serve so many times. You need to give so much. If you do those at the end of the day, you're going to be made right right with God. That, I don't know about you, but sounds more like a challenge, almost like a game show. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Rather than to be able to deal with the inward sinfulness of my heart. Rather to be able to come to the understanding of what really actually dwells within Without, coming to, without actually coming to the idea of going, my heart is exceedingly wicked all the time. There is no way for me to earn right standing before God. There's no way for me to deserve right standing before God. So it kills all of my pride. It's washed all away. And all I'm left with is me placing my faith and my hope in what Jesus Christ has done for me, not what, what I have done for him. And so this is the idea. He goes, bro, you have two different religions going on here completely. 
You have this false gospel that says if you want to be right with God, you do so many things right. Paul sits back and goes, bro, it's not about the outward actions. It's about the inward work of the Holy Spirit inside of you and inside of me. And so this is what's always interesting. This has always been our sinful inclination, even since the time of Adam and Eve. Do you remember when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what was their first compulsion? Was it to come to God and go, man, we blew it. We're so sorry. Please forgive us. No, what did they do? They ran. They hid. And then what did they do? They covered themselves up with fig leaves. The purpose of covering up with fig leaves is to be able to hide the condition of the heart. You know what all these religious practices do for so many people all the way around the world? Is they know they have a sin condition, but in rather dealing with that sin condition, it's a lot easier for you and I to take part in religious practices and just cover up and to be able to hide really the condition of what our own heart and what the real problem is for you and I. And so what happens is this makes it really, really easy for you and I to self-deceive ourselves. To go, how are you doing with God today? Hey, good, good. I, I prayed this morning. I gave this last week. I did a little bit of serving well. Hey, God and I are doing pretty well. And there could be this great self-deception in it. Uh, because the truth of the matter is, is you could, do, you could take part in a million religious acts, but still remain a million miles away from God. And, and so this is Jesus' very point when he talks about the Pharisees and he rebukes them. And he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 when he says, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, all external. He says, While their hearts are far from me. So this is the sadness. And it's not only that we deceive ourselves, we deceive other people. We know this whether we admit it or not. We know how easy it is to dupe one another in the church. We know how easy it is for us as long as we uh, come to the church and uh, we keep the company line and we do a little serving, we do a little giving and, and everything. And ultimately, nobody really knows what's resting below in the sin within our heart. Why? Because we're covered with these nice looking leaves. Nobody knows. I was told this last week. A pastor uh, I was just meeting with, he, he told me that he had just gotten back from a mission trip, and he said when he got back, the trip was great, got back, his whole world kind of was, was ripped open. I said, what is it? And he said, well, one of the guys that went with me, he goes, he, who's gone on several mission trips with me, last four mission trips with me, he was there, he was, he was in the city, he was sharing the gospel, he was serving people, he was doing all these wonderful things. He goes, only when we get back, the very first week we got back, he said he had enough of his marriage, he's leaving his wife. How does that happen? Because it's so easy to deceive ourselves and other people by filling our lives with a bunch of religious activities. At the same time, we still have the same central heart issue that it's still riddled with sin. And Paul goes, he's not coming, about, he's not coming for to ultimately just to reform what you're doing outward. He's ultimately coming to do what? To transform you from the inside out, not the outside out. In other words, yes, you and I are going to serve and we're going to do and we're going to do those things. But it's just because what God does inside of us is going to have a way to work its way out. And it's working its way out in worship to God, not in trying to barter for salvation or acceptance for him. And so here he is. He's saying, hey, look, it, 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 you're, caught, you're taking too much time focusing on what's outward than rather what's inward. That's the difference between these gospels. So let me just say this. If you're here and you're new to Mercy Hill, and there's a lot of reasons why different people will come. And, and we jokingly say this, and, and it's actually true. Uh, for some people, it's because they lost a bet. And maybe that is why you are here today. You lost a bet. It's why you're coming. You're paying penance. Uh, other people, there's a lot of different reasons. They are moving into the area. They're, they're 
they're coming you know, from other churches, they're looking for a church, and that's all very difficult. Sometimes people are just coming because things just haven't been going well in their life. And that's, we, we invite you, and we're so glad that you chose to come here in a time that's so difficult in your life. But, but, but oftentimes you'll hear this, guys will go, hey, the reason I'm here is because uh, we had kids, and I don't really know what to do with them, but I figured that they need to be in church, so I'm here suffering under the, the, your sermon in order for my kids to be able to get taught uh, some good morality. So they're back there, they're doing their thing, uh, so why don't, you know, we're, we're all going to get along. And the sad part of it is, is whenever things begin to fall apart, here's what people will say. You know, I just have to get back to what? Church. What, what, what are they saying? I got to get back to doing religious things. I got to get back to making sure that I'm doing the right things that, so that God will accept me and so the outcome will be that my life will ultimately go better. What we're wanting to be able to hear is what I need to do is I need to get back to Christ. I need to come back to him because my issue is not what's happening externally. My issue is with my heart and only he can deal with it. Only he can change me. And so we find in the beginning that there was a difference in emphasis. One was emphasizing outward, what was outward, the other what was inward. And, and number two, look at this, we're already halfway through. Say amen, amen, all right? Number two, the difference in what they exalted. Difference in what they exalted. One exalted man, while the other exalted God. Here's what's really puzzling about these Judaizers, these false teachers, is here they are trying to pressure these guys to be circumcised, right? They're, they're trying to force them and manipulate them to do the very thing that they've done in order to be accepted by God. That's, that's what they're doing through the whole thing. But yet, look at what verse 13 says. Paul says, for even those who are circumcised, that was these false teachers, do not themselves keep the law. So here they are. They're trying to say, hey, bro, only way to be right before God is to keep the law, and in, the, and in their own minds, they know they've never been able to keep the law. They've never been able to keep it perfectly, do everything that would make them right before God. They just cannot do it. And so the question is, why would they teach something that they ultimately don't believe? Well, look, there's two different kinds of false teachers. Uh, the, the first kind of teacher is what I call a sincere false teacher. That's what I've done sometimes. That is, I may just have the text of Scripture wrong, and what I'm teaching, I'm not meaning to mislead anybody. I've just myself been misled, right? That's one type of false teacher. That's a better kind of false teacher. Still bad, but a better type of false teacher. A worse type of false teacher is a person who literally knows what it is that they are teaching wrong, and they teach it for the purpose of misleading other people. And that's exactly what this group was doing. They knew it would be impossible by their own experience to ever be accepted by God by doing enough good things, but yet they're placing that same garbage on everybody else. Why? One reason, for self-exaltation, for the purpose of making themselves look good and receiving praise and glory of others. We see it laid out in three ways. Three ways. Look at verse 12 and 13 for a moment. Here's the three phases that, phrases that, that we, we see at evidence. He says, first of all, Paul says, the reason they're teaching this, even though it, they know it, they can never do it, is because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. You know what they want to do? They want to be able to sit there and teach other people the way in order to be accepted by God is to be very, very holy, is to be very, very good, It's to do very, very good things, much like I myself have ultimately done. So be like me. You know what they want to do? They want to take all the attention to themselves of why they now are accepted by God because of what they did. 
It's self-glorification, self-exaltation. There's another reason. Notice this in the next phrase. He says, in order that they may, may not be persecuted from the cross of Christ. So here's what's going on. There was great persecution going on in the early church between the Jews and the Christians. Uh, the Jews were sitting there going, hey, you can only be made right before God by following the law. Then Paul comes with his disciples and preaches this, you're only right by grace through faith alone. Well, the two of those things are not going to match. They're not going to ultimately line up. And so, so the, these false teachers are trying to please man by trying to please both by trying to span them together. He goes to the Christians and he goes, you know, I agree just like you do. In order to be made right before God, we have to accept Jesus as our Savior. Uh, then he says, but we also need to, appeasing the, the Jews, we also need to be able to follow the law as well to truly be right. And what they would ultimately do is now everybody ultimately loves them. And what Paul's point is going to be is if you preach the gospel and you live according to the gospel, there's no way for the world to love you. See, the, the, the teacher's motivation for preaching this false gospel was to look good and be accepted in the eyes of the world. But see, this works-based salvation doesn't offend. It doesn't offend anybody. Uh, the world as a whole, understand this, uh, they're not against religion. You understand that. What I mean by the world is those that are apart from Christ, they don't mind religion. Uh, at least most of them, they're fine. They're okay with the good Buddhist that lives down in the corner, or the good Hindu, or the great Hare Krishna, and all their neat garb and the way they you know, adorn their hair. Hey, I like that Hare Krishna. He's a good guy. They even like menial Christians, even people that have a little religion on the weekend. Here's why. As long as the religion helps that person to be better and a better citizen, then they're okay with that. Here's what they do not have any time or, or any love for. As, as long as the religion says you can earn your right standing before God, they're okay. But when you preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it's what they hate because it says you have no possibility of making yourself right before God. All other religions say you can. Christianity comes and says you can't. And so this is the way, this is the way that Tim Keller puts it. The gospel is offensive to the liberal-minded people who charge the gospel with intolerance because it, it states that the only way to be saved is through the cross. That's what liberals hate. Again, if you say, look, all, all roads lead to heaven, they'll be like, okay, we'll leave you alone. The moment you say, nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, there's pure hatred and resentment for that type of intolerance. But some of you are going, yeah, those liberals. But now I'm going to talk about y'all conservatives. All right, so here's, here's what happens for them. He speaks to you as well. He says, the gospel is offensive to a conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. So if you go to the good old boy that lives next door to you and, you know, he's served in the military, amen? You know, he's, he drives a truck, amen? Uh, he loves his mama and he eats apple pie and he's good to his wife and he's part of the Rotary Club. I don't even really know what that is, to be honest with you. And, uh, and, uh, and, and he does all these really, really good things. And then, every, and then you sit to him and you sit down with him and say, hey, bro, I want to let you know that in all of your own self-righteousness, you're in just the same condition and position and under the same wrath and judgment of God as your next-door neighbor who is just sowing into the wind of sin. And the reason that that frustrates them and offends them is simply this. It's because ultimately the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. Works-based religion does not offend because it strokes the pride of us all. The gospel strips every bit of pride away from us. So here's follow, follow his thought. 
the reason that they're preaching this false man-made gospel is because they get to receive the glory for their own salvation. They also get to receive the glory from everyone around who praises them for their own beliefs and what it is that they're spreading. And then finally, he, he, he gives us a third thing here in verse 13, and they desire to have you circumcised because that they may boast in your flesh. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about uh, they want to take credit for y'all's conversion to Judaism. And they're going to get even more praise for that. Let me put it in Southern Baptist terms. And some of you, I don't mean to startle you, but some of you are members are about to be startled. We are a Southern Baptist church. I know some of you are like, what? We're a Southern Baptist church? Yes, uh, we are. All right, and so that's where we hold our doctrine. Hey, welcome to the family. All right, and so uh, here's some things. And because we are, I can pick on this. One of the things that I hate so much about uh, Southern Baptists is they're so numbers-driven. Uh, they're always talking about the numbers of baptisms. In fact, I don't know if the, if the state does it anymore, but at one time every year they would deliver the top, the top churches with the most baptisms. Isn't that great? Look at the top ten. Glory to these ten churches. And maybe the motivation is to be great and to encourage each other, but I just see a whole lot of self-glory in that, not the glory of Jesus Christ. Not would just say, hey man, we've had this many people come to faith in Christ, this many baptized, and this many people that we know are walking according to faith in Jesus Christ. May God be glorified. I remember, remember when we took up the offering for, for, the, uh, for the hurricane? And, uh, and, and very benevolently, this, this church gave $80,000 to it. Praise God. It's wonderful. It's awesome. And, and $80,000 to, to that, and it all went to, to there. You remember this. Well, a, a friend of mine from the convention just basically asked me, he said, so how'd your Sunday go? I said, man, it went really well. Our folks just really sold out, really gave into this. $80,000 going towards it. That's great. The next thing I know, and I'm not on Twitter in the Twitter sphere. I don't even know what that is or where it is. But, but all I know is that the rest of our staff is like, hey, bro, did you see this? It says Mike Kwiatkowski, pastor at Mercy Hill, led his people to give $80,000. I'm like, how, how in the world does this even happen? And if you know anything about me, somebody might sit there and go, hey, that's cool. And I'm sitting back going, bro, that's not cool at all. Why don't you just say, hey, and a, a church was led by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, to be able to give $80,000. $80, somebody said, well, it may not be the money. Okay, name it or not name it. It may just be encouraging to other people. But why do we have to put a face to it? Why can't we just bring the glory of God to it? And so, so, so it's, it's, it, and these guys are always trying to come back and always try to do it. I, I can't imagine, look, none of us appreciate people stealing our glory. Would you admit? That's why we fight all the time as husbands and wives. It's all glory stealing. If you make me look bad, you're stealing my glory. I'm going to make you look bad. And so it goes and fights back and forth. Uh, frustrations in church do the same exact thing. Uh, when you're at your workplace, it's all about the alpha dog and who's going to climb the highest and who's the big dog in the office. It's all about glory stealing. And none of us enjoy it, but we need to certainly die to it. I remember being in the ninth grade, and there was a girl that I liked by the name of Erin. I won't name, I won't give her last name just because she'd be embarrassed of it, but uh, her name is Erin. She was a lovely girl, wonderful girl, great athlete. Praise God for unanswered prayers because I really wanted to marry her in ninth grade because you have everything figured out in ninth grade. And so I really wanted to be able to marry her, and, um, and uh, I remember praying, God, just give me Erin as my wife. And Praise God, again, it didn't work out that way because uh, she was about six foot. And uh, it just would have looked really weird through the whole thing. And so praise God for that. And so didn't end up marrying her, as you know. But, but here's what was weird is it was kind of, there was kind of like this, she kind of liked two of us, me and this guy named Patrick. 
And, uh, and so, you know, we were kind of, I, I think it was kind of a close neck and neck is what I kind of thought it was. I was going to win her heart. He was going to win her heart. So I decided I'm going to pull out all the guns. I'll get her some roses. I had 20, 12 beautiful roses kind of delivered, you know, put her name on it. I didn't put my name on it. Uh, you know, I just figured she's going to know who this is from. And so she comes, I see her at lunch, go to the thing, come out with this big thing of roses. And she's looking around with a big smile on her face. And somehow she bypasses me. And she goes straight to... Patrick. And she starts walking over to Patrick with a big smile on her face, and he with a big smile on his face, and she goes, thank you. He goes, you're welcome. <laughs> what a glory thief. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Any religion, any church, any person who is saying, hey, um, I need to take some of the glory for my own salvation because of what I do and because of my goodness and because of the acts of goodness. Can you imagine what a slight that is to God who in his graciousness sent his only son to die on a cross, to be stepped out of heaven, to set aside for a temporary period all of his rights as being the son of God, setting them aside all for uh, the whole weight of mankind's sin, yours and mine, to pour out on him, the wrath of God to pour out on him until it was completely satisfied. To him, then, the Father, to be able to raise him uh, to, uh, up from the dead, to be able to demonstrate that that penalty had been, had been paid for, all for you and I to say, hey, a little bit of that glory deserving, I, I, I'm deserving of. That's, that's stealing the glory of God away. That is, that is not something that you and I ought to do. Paul sits back and he says it himself. He, he understands it. Verse 14, For far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes, if somebody says, hey, how are you saved? I'm not going to say baptism. I'm not going to say good works. I'm not going to say, hey, I took the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to take anything else. I'll tell you, one reason that I boast is in the completed work of Jesus Christ. You want to know how I was born again? Through him. Through him and him alone. I had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it? Did you repent and believe? Yeah. But how'd you do that? Well, because he gave me faith to believe. Thank you. What do I do? There's nowhere for me to boast in this. Paul says I won't boast in anything except for the person of Jesus Christ. And then notice how this plays out for him. He says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love this part. He says, when I finally came to understand this salvation by grace through faith alone, it completely changed the way that I lived. Because now, no longer, he goes, he, notice that again, that last part. He goes, the world has been crucified to me. He goes, all of the desires that I used to have for the world, all the, all, all the desires of me living for myself and being, be, being self-exalted for my own salvation, the desire for the world to praise me, he goes, you know what? All that I, I, I died to. Now, there's still trickles of it. As a newborn believer, there's still trickles of it. But he goes, I died to that to the point that now I could care less what the world thinks of me anymore. What freedom? Can you imagine that freedom? That, that we're not sitting there trying to steal the glory of God, but yet we sit there and go, instead, I'm dead to glory stealing. Can you imagine the difference that would make in, in our marriages? For a husband and wife, I, I, I mean, look, I'm the worst counselor in the world. That's why Chris is doing it. Now, because when you come into me, I go, why are y'all stealing each other's glory? Why are you stealing God's glory? Why are you sitting there and trying to up, 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 up one another? Why are you trying to say that you're better than them when both of you are filthy, dirty sinners? 
And once you realize that and understand that, then you sit there and go, no, I've been accepted by God, the redeemer of the universe. And then you sit there and go, well, that's good enough to me, man. I'm going to go ahead and now be freed up from serving to to getting uh, all of this attention and all this worship and, and all this glory. And now I'm freed up just to be able to give it to God by serving my spouse. Wouldn't that be great? What about, what about a young man or a young woman who's going through the teenage years and they feel all these pressures and they're being pulled left and right by all of these different people and all of these uh, different temptations when, when they begin to understand, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what do I care what my friends say? I've been accepted and received by the King, Jesus Christ. What difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world for the way that we live our life. So he says, I've been crucified the world, all the passions and desires that I used to have. He says, now, he goes, an eye to the world. You know what eye to the world means? It means now the world doesn't have much love for him anymore, unlike these other teachers. Why? Because of what it is that he is ultimately preaching, an eye to the world. Abdad, did you know that if you are Jewish, I mean devout Jewish, if you are a devout Muslim, if you come to faith in Christ and are baptized, uh, you understand that they have a funeral for you. You're dead to them. You walk away. They'll literally have oftentimes a physical funeral for you because you are dead to them. Paul says this is what happens for those people who promote a man-made salvation. When you come and promote the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the world saying you can, the gospel saying you can't, but Christ can for you. He says you are dead to the world. They have no need for you anymore. And here's what he says. Uh, this is what I love in this next verse. Uh, if you look a little bit further down, he says, he says to him, he says uh, in, in, in verse, 19, or verse 17, from now on let no one cause me trouble. Here's the trouble they were causing him. They were saying the only reason you keep preaching this grace through faith alone thing is because you're trying to appease people. You're trying to make it easy on people so that they don't have to do a bunch of right things. And then he turns around and he says, hey, quit giving me a hard time. I'm not trying to appease people at all. And how, what's the evidence for that? He says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I've been beaten many, many, numerous times because the gospel that I preach of grace through faith alone. Does that seem as though I'm somebody who's living for the applause of man? No, I'm living for the praise of God. And so he comes, and then finally, notice how he just closes this out. Verse 16, uh, verse 16 and 17, or verse 16 and 18, actually. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule, that's what he's saying. For all of you who now walk by being accepted by God, by grace through faith alone, and not through your religiosity, not through your religious works. That's what he means. For you who live that law, look what the outcome is. Peace and mercy be upon you and upon Israel of God, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers, amen. If you live based on works-based salvation, if you think that you have to be good enough, that's slavery and bondage. That's slavery and bondage. There is no peace that comes with that because you never know if you've done enough. There's no peace for that because you never know when you're going to fall out of his good graces. You're constantly scared that he, if you do bad enough or you don't do good enough, that he's going to break up with you like some middle school boyfriend or girlfriend. There's, there's no peace in that. Then he says, look, then there's mercy. Just a lifelong of receiving what it is that we don't deserve. Then there's grace, not receiving what we do deserve. So you, you have you have, he's laying it out at the end. Here's your, cho- here's your choice. 
Try to rely on your own goodness before God and your own good works, that you're a good man, good husband, good person, and sit there and go, this is enough for God, and live the rest of your life in bondage, all to do, do nothing else but to be able to face the judgment of God, or to be able to go the way of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which say, bro, I'm not good enough, can't be good enough, can't do it, but I just by faith repent of my sin, accept the free gift of eternal life. He goes, and live in peace and mercy and grace for the rest of your existence. Which is it going to be? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your goodness. God, we just come to you right now and we just pray, Lord, that you would move in us this morning. You'd move in this place. God, I can't help but to think that there are some who maybe are truly saved by grace through faith. They got that part. But, Lord, again, their actions are still living by this, this whole checklist thing. Did I do enough? Did I not do enough? Again, God, it's not that we don't work. It's just that we don't work for your acceptance. We work from your acceptance. That's a completely different type of work. It's not exhausting. It's praise and worship. It's glorious. It's something we want to do. God, or there may be somebody here who truly all their life has thought that I need to believe partly in God and I also need to be partly earning my own righteousness through my good works. And here's what the gospel does. It doesn't allow you to split the difference. The gospel either tells you you must depend only on your goodness or you must depend only on the goodness of Jesus Christ. Lord, and I pray that today that those who are here will come to the realization the only answer is to depend on you and your completed work. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. I want to be standing down here. I'd love to pray with you. If you want to know more about the gospel, more about what it means to be saved, I want you to be able to come. And, uh, and so I just... Uh, let's, just, let's just take a couple of moments to think on, to pray on, and to respond to the word that we've heard at this time.